always knew from a very early age that my mission was to be a leader of leaders and to develop leaders. That was my core value. That was my goal. That's the reason why I was put on this earth. I had the opportunity to impact people at the perfect age where they need the most molding. I don't know why it took me leaving the company to understand that I was living my dream. This is what I've always wanted to do, and I had to leave to understand. I decided that I wanted to come back, and my journey's a really cool one. I think it's really important that we don't take for granted that when somebody walks into our Zoom or walks into our office, that we have the obligation to show up and give that person our very best. We have the tools to help anybody, and that's leadership. The voice you just heard is David Roy, one of the most engaging and inspiring leaders in the Cutco Vector Marketing sales organization. David was a champion manager who was on his way up the advancement ladder in Vector before leaving to pursue another opportunity. But it wasn't long before David was back in Vector, living his true mission in life. When you hear David speak, you'll hear enthusiasm and conviction. These come from a deep understanding of the opportunity he has and his strong desire to show up energy rich for everyone around him. David is now back to being one of the top performers in the company, and this episode is filled with value nuggets and extreme inspiration. From New Orleans, Louisiana, this is the SEC Division Coordinator, David Roy. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. My guest today is David Roy. David started with the Cutco Vector business back in December of 2011. He was a college student at that time, had great success selling Cutco during college. He was a three-time college All-American and became a branch manager as well. Became a district manager in 2014, and he won the New DM Silver Cup, number one new district manager in the company that year. Had a great run as a district manager for several years before leaving the business for a little while. He had an opportunity come his way that he decided to take. And he explored that for a couple years before deciding that Vector is the place to be and wanted to come back to the Vector business. He reopened his team in New Orleans, Louisiana, just around the start of the summer campaign of 2020. And in a mere eight months, David and his team sold over $1.2 million of Cutco It was $854,000 in new business that placed them number two in the Premier League for the year, which is an epic performance. They have done over $10,000 in new business every single week since David reopened in the Vector business, and he has now been promoted to the position of division coordinator for the SEC division headquartered there in New Orleans. David Roy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, so excited to be on today. So this is uh, I listen, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I remember like yesterday, you know, listening to Michael and Brandon Brown, and just what you do makes such a big difference, Dan. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. This is going to be fun. Take us back to 2011. Tell us how you got started with Cutco. 
Yeah, I was just like most college kids. I needed experience. I was working at Longhorn Steakhouse. Uh, believe it or not, I applied to be a waiter, but they told me I did not have social skills. <laughs> uh, so I was the cook in the back for a little while. I remember going to Longhorn Steakhouse with flashcards in my pocket and trying to study. I remember one specific day, I was on a break with you know one of the people that worked there. He had been there for eight, nine, ten years. And I remember just being super curious. And I was like, hey, how much do you get paid? And he was like, I get paid $15 an hour. And I just had that moment where I was like, if I work here for 10 years, I'm going to get a $2 raise. <laughs> and I freaked out. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go get a job that I'm going to get paid for with the work that I put in. But there was one problem. I hated talking in front of people. I failed speech class. Definitely used to have panic attacks as like a kid. But I really decided I wanted to get outside my comfort zone. So I applied online. I know most people that uh, hear about the job, hear about it through a friend, but I applied on Craigslist. I went to the interview. He cut the penny. I was sold. I was like, this is the most amazing stuff ever. And I I think I broke the record uh, for most times trying to quit my first 10 days on the job. Uh, (laughs) I did not hit my first promotion my first 10 days on the job. I was the worst person in my training class. But I was so appreciative to see people get off to a fast start. And that really inspired me to want to get better. So that's kind of how I got started. Yeah. How does a guy with no social skills who hates talking in front of people end up succeeding at a job like this, man? I think the biggest thing was I found a mentor and his name was Julian Landry. And Julian Landry's a really good friend of mine. And he took me under his wing. Uh, Matter of fact, my first year on the job, you know, Dan, I I didn't have one week over $3,000 in sales. So I met this guy, you know, Julian Landry, and it blew me away on how much he cared about me. And he didn't even know me. And he just took me under his wing and we would role play and, you know, practice the script and just go above him. It would be like 11 o'clock at night. And he would call me and he'd be like, all right, do you know your closing approach? Do you know your phoning approach? And I think just repetition really helped me get outside my comfort zone. And then I went field training. I watched him do a, a demo and the lady told him they weren't going to buy like, I don't know, Dan, 10 times. And they bought a signature set. So they bought like $2,000. And I was like, this is crazy. And it just opened my eyes to really realize what was possible. And he really taught me how to master my craft and how to put wow. in what it looked like to be successful. So cool that uh, you were mentored there by Julian. Of course, Julian's still a great sales rep in the business and, uh, and, and doing a lot of awesome things. So that is great. What were some of the er- uh, most important early experiences and lessons that you had as a young sales rep? Kaiko? Yeah. You know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is don't give up. Once again, I went the whole year without ever having a week over $3,000 in sales. A matter of fact, I got evicted from my home. I didn't have a ton of money. You know, I sold $30,000 my first year. So I made around nine grand. I did this full time. I just couldn't give up. I think that was the big thing. So Number two was find role models. Find people that were playing at a, a, a level that's higher than which the level that you're playing on. And I remember seeing people like Julian Landry and Jordan McGee and Justin Ledford and Mike Lanzetta. And those people just helped mold me. And I thought that was really important. One of the biggest lessons that I learned is that not everything has to be so hard. And I remember thinking, you know, it was so hard to do XYZ. It was so hard to sell $1,000. It was so hard to sell $3,000. And when I was talking with Mike, and we'll kind of get to this in a little bit, but he helped me identify that when you put in the right actions and then you believe, right? And good things can happen. And not everything has to be a grind, but you kind of shift your mindset to, hey, I deserve success. And that really flipped the switch for me a little bit. And really helped me out. That was some of my biggest lessons. I love the insight of feeling like you deserve success. This is the concept that I've taught for many, many years that I think is really insightful. When somebody puts in the effort and they do what they're supposed to do and they follow through and they have discipline and they take the right actions, all of those things begin to develop this feeling of, I deserve to do well here. I'm doing what it takes to do well, I deserve it. And that deserving feeling sort of circles back and keeps people motivated and inspired to stay on that track. And it starts this sort of upward spiral and it takes a short time for some people, it takes a little longer for others, but inevitably you reach great success when you are on that track. And so that's a great insight that you shared. 
Was it working in, with Mike Lanzetta that flipped the switch for you? Yeah, I was reading a book and it was my first push ever. And so, you know, most push stories are a little crazy. So I'll tell you mine. I never had a week, once again, over $3,000 in sales. And the week that I wanted to do was first week of January, our January push. So believe it or not, my district manager, Jerry Blanchard at the time, was out of town. So I had to run the office while going after my first 10K push. I started coaching with Mike right around that same time. And I was reading a book called Think and Grow Rich. And we're learning about faith and desire and all the things that it talks about in the book. And it was really inspiring to me. And I remember talking to Mike. And as we were having this coaching call, this is when he really broke it down. He goes, Dave, you deserve to hit 3K. You deserve to hit 4K. You deserve to hit 5K. You put in the work. You're investing in yourself. And I started to believe that. I started to believe right, that I can achieve those things. And he was sharing third-person stories, etc. And my first week of push, Dan, I sold $300. It was absolutely horrible. But I ran a training class and they did amazing. It was like, you know, at the time, I thought it was amazing. They did like 7,000 first weekend. I was so excited. I was pumped up. It was the first training class ever. And then, you know, so there was, what was it? Uh, I think it was a 17-day push. So there was 10 days remaining. And I remember the last weekend, I was driving and I got into a car accident. And this was the first time that, you know, Mike told me, he was like, look, like, it doesn't matter what the result is. The only thing that really matters is who you become in the process. And I was afraid, like most people, to give it all I got and fail. And I decided during those 10 days that I was just going to play all out, give it all I got and see what happens. And I got into this car accident. I remember just like yesterday, my car was in the water. Okay. And my mom was there. The police officers were there. Everybody was there. And I got out and my mom was like, I'm glad you're alive, but still yelling at me. And (laughs) I had just totaled the car. The police officers were there. I remember having this moment where I had this thought and I was like, 99.9% of people are going to quit at this very moment. And I remember yelling, Dan, I was like, is this all you got? Is this all you got? And I just was like, I'm going to find a way. So the next day I went and got like a rental car, sold a whole bunch of knives, sold more than I did, you know, the other previous seven days. On the last day, I had like six appointments and every single one of them canceled. And I remember going to like gas stations and just like ask, like cutting stuff in the gas stations as hope hoping somebody would buy something. And I remember calling one of my friends at the time. Her name was Jacqueline Valle. I was like $3,000 behind. It was like 10 o'clock at night. And I was in tears. And I remember being in tears because it was the first time that I really gave it all I got and I didn't hit my goal. And we call that, you know, that was our accountability buddy. And she was like, Dave, it's not over. So I went to my mom's house. The door was locked. I was trying to like break in with like a spatula spreader. I like finally like knocked on the door enough. She like let me in. And I started calling family members that were from out, you know, outside of Louisiana. And I hit it. I sold, you know, a little bit over $3,000. I wrote up my last order at like two or three o'clock in the morning and I hit my goal. And it was the breakthrough for me that there's the story, the journey, the obstacles. That's what makes it great. That's the part of the 10K that it changed my life forever. And I think that experience, I remember being at the conference, Dan, and you'll love this, my, uh, my trophy broke that I won. And I remember thinking, I was listening to Hal Elrod. And he, you know how he always has the quote, he always says, you know, the trophies break, the money gets spent, the growth lasts forever. And I remember thinking, you know what? I just spent all of my money on like the new car that I'm about to buy. My trophy is broken, but what a cool story. And I will be able to share this, you know, forever. And, you know, I've been sharing that story now for for eight years. So that was my breakthrough moment. It's incredible to me, David, how many past and present Vector greats experienced a breakthrough during something as simple as a two-week push period. Mm -hmm. It's a short amount of time, two weeks, 17 days, whatever it is, you know, 10 days in some cases. It's a short amount of time that people are going after a goal, 10K or whatever the goal is. Oftentimes it's 10K. and there's so many life lessons that happen in this short period of time and so many little experiences that you always will remember and be able to share things that will make you a better leader for others and just stuff that uh, we all can build on in our future. So awesome to hear that. That was so cool. Tell us about the path upwards after that. You became an All-American multiple times and had a great run, right? Tell us about that. You know, I was really inspired, Dan. I was really inspired one of my biggest motivations to go after 10K 
was that I was going to get promoted at Year and Banquet to be a branch manager. And I remember sharing my goals with the customers. And I was like, Hey, Miss Jones, listen, like, there's people that I'm going to impact in the future. And I don't even know their names yet. You know, maybe it's Dan, maybe it's Mike, you know, maybe it's, it's Julian, but you know, people are relying on me right now. And I, I've always had this sense of ownership that I had to lead from the front. And that was just so important to me. So it really inspired me. Once I hit 10K, I went on to have three campaigns over $40,000 as a sales manager. And you know, I used to have to drive an hour to the office every, every single day. I remember showing up then to run a phone jam and nobody was there. And I would have these two trophies. One was named Biggie, one was named Tupac. And I would, I would run the phone jams for the trophies. I would run interviews for trophies when people didn't show up. And I just always wanted to lead from the front. I was really inspired. You know, as I was an assistant manager, I had many people on my team. And I'm proud to tell you that I've never had somebody on my team beat me for a week. I once had a guy, Dan, he did $6,000 first weekend. So I did 6,001. And <laughs> I, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to find a way to always lead from the front. And, and that was my biggest motivation. I was reading 21 Laws of Leadership and there was something in there about the number one thing that people look for in leaders was people that lead from the front. And I really just always took that from, I took that like, that was one of the, I guess like just a breakthrough moment for me where I was, I'm committed to doing that as a leader. So that led me on to win a few different scholarships. I personally only did it because I, I, I hoped that it would inspire other people. And then from there, I decided to run a branch. The branch experience was the best experience I've ever had in my life. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember when I was at the dinner with my mom and my manager was like, hey, your son's going to run a branch. And my mom laughed. We're at Olive Garden. She just laughed. And she was like, she doesn't even know how to make his bed. Like, why would you trust him to like run a business? You're crazy. I was like, mom, shut up. Like, relax. I'm going to do this. And so I decided to run a branch. I sold $400 in May, just like my push, right? I sold $400 in May, like 3000 in June and 120 in July. And that was a trend, right? I didn't always get off to a fast start. I was the guy who always started off slow. I remember some of my biggest lessons while running a branch. I remember one time I forgot to pay my electricity bill and we had to run training in McDonald's parking lot. And it was my best training class of the whole summer. And it was, I had a 10K fast starter, you know, from McDonald's parking lot. And I just remember thinking it's culture. It's if you're excited about the job, if you have a great culture, if you're going above and beyond for your people, right? People are going to go to war with you. And it was such a great experience. I did a hundred and like, I had just missed company tripped and literally just missed it. But it was a good experience from there. I remember going, I was going to open up as a district manager. I was on my, uh, on my way to Ole in New York. And I remember doing the old Benjamin Franklin clothes. I took a piece of paper on the airplane. I wrote all the things I was good at. I wrote all the things I was bad at. And I was inspired to win Silver Cup. To go back a little bit, matter of fact, the last meeting for SC2 when I was a branch, I had a goal of doing like $150,000 for SC2. I don't know. We did like 50, whatever it was. But anyway, we had the people at the Alliance meeting and they were there that morning and they were like, so what are you going to do next summer? And I was like, man, this management stuff is not for me. I'm going to go CSP, which, you know, I love CSPs. And they were like, well, cool. If you're going to go CSP, I'm not going to work for Cutco anymore. And I was like, no, you have to come back next summer. And they were like, I'll come back if you come back. So we took out loose leaf pieces of paper and we had a fake contract, Dan. And the contract was that if I came back next summer, they had to come back and we would win Silver Cup. And we all signed it on this like loose leaf piece of paper. And we were like, all right, we're coming back round two. And we did. We came back the next summer. We prepared. We started running like district calls in like January, you know, on freeconferencecall.com or whatever it was at the time. And in typical fashion, yeah, we, we won Silver Cup, you know, our first year open. That's so cool. I love the the branch story of the $400 May and the $3,000 June, and then bam, $120,000 in July. My branch experience was similar to that the very first time. We totally sucked in May and June. And then we pulled it together in July and August and, you know, ended up doing, I think we ended up doing 144 grand for the summer. And so there's some similarities in how our branch summers unfolded 
the core of people who said they wanted you to come back so they could work with you again. That says a lot about you establishing the followership, which is is key thing. You know, I think that anybody can become a manager just by getting promoted to a branch manager position, but that doesn't mean you're a leader when others follow you, when people are inspired to follow you. And you develop that followership with people that wanted to come back and be a part of your district team. And then it really came to fruition the following year when you won that silver cup. It's a really cool story, David. Tell us about some of your success factors as a DM. Yeah. You know, so my opening up, I think the biggest thing, and I know I just mentioned this, but the culture, I think that was so important, especially as a new manager. As a new manager, it's so different than who I am today. I didn't understand strategy. I didn't understand a plan. I didn't understand a lot of those different things, but I understood culture and I understand going above and beyond for my people. That was something that was so important. Showing up every single day, energy rich. No matter what the day, whatever challenges it was, just showing up every... Remember, my office was on, in West Bank, Louisiana. And I remember I would have to drive over the bridge every single day uh, to get to my office. And every time as I was going over the bridge, as I was halfway through, I would just get excited and I would just get into like a state. Right. And I would say, man, no matter what happens today, I'm going to give people a signature experience. I thought that was really important. I always tried to grow myself. Dan. I remember, you know, early in my, in my career going to date with destiny and, and, uh, which is a Tony Robbins event and going on, going to UPW. I was always really inspired by continuously growing myself that could help others grow continuously reading. So I could help, you know, I had topics for, for staff meeting. I thought that was something that's really important because the more value you can give people, the more they're going to stick around. And we did such a good job with retention because we were value givers, right? We were value givers. My staff was growing. I was growing. And we did, you know, we were going to events. We were going on calls, whatever it was to just give back to people. You know, I think a big part of it as well as one of my biggest lessons was Superman dies in this business. There's a thing called CVI, I'm sure a lot of people know, and it's just a personality test. And I'm like a builder builder. And anyway, for me, it was, I wanted to do everything. And I felt like I could do everything better. And what I realized was that it wasn't going to be sustained success if I always did everything. So I made a decision one day that it was okay to fail. And it was okay to fail to give up for for long-term success. And the only way that sometimes you can grow is by giving people the opportunity to grow with you. And that was the biggest difference that I made from my branch to my district was in my branch, I did everything. And as I became a district manager, it was like, hey, you know what? We're going to mess up, but we're going to mess up full speed. And we're going to mess up having a ton of fun. And I think when you give people permission to not be perfect, when you give people permission to just give up the need to be perfect, to be authentic, it really allows people to grow. And that's something that we started doing really early in my career. And as you can imagine, we blossomed with a lot of leaders. People wanted to have that opportunity. And people were running interviews, they were running trainings, and I I just gave up the need that it had to be me. And that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned, especially as an early district manager. I love that aspect of development, David. I think it's such a key part of development for any leader trying to grow an organization. It's a very difficult part for some people to be able to grasp because they want to control everything. They want to do everything. They want everything to be done a certain way. And you have to be able to let go of that desire to everything to be done your way. People have different styles and different methods. And I think ultimately when results are achieved that it's okay to have, you know, there's different ways to skin a cat, so to speak. And being able to have that proper delegation where somebody feels secure doing their thing and making a mistake, it starts with direction and giving people good direction so that they feel like they have, they understand what to do. They understand the, the task at hand. They're, they're taught, they're trained well. It also is really important how you handle it when someone does make a mistake. Because when someone does make a mistake, if you make them feel terrible for it, then they're, they're afraid of doing that mistake again, of making another mistake later. When instead you realize, okay, the mistake is over. It's water under the bridge. I'm not going to address what just happened. I'm going to instead spin this around. Hey, this situation is going to come up again. 
let's talk about how you're going to handle it next time. When you have more of what I'd call a future orientation versus a past orientation in working with people, then they feel more secure and they are not afraid of taking action because they know sometimes they will make mistakes, but they see how you're going to handle it when they do that. And there's a lot more encouragement and confidence that happens. So it's a great just the methodology for developing people that you sort of intuitively grasp right out of the gate. Yeah. You know, when I was opening up my office, Dustin Marks, he was a former division manager of mine. He wouldn't allow us to sign our lease unless we read One Minute Manager. And it talks about the Oreo effect and, you know, praise, reprimand, praise. And I learned that very early that you didn't want to make people feel bad. You actually want to make them feel good and then giving them that proper direction like you just mentioned, right? I thought that was really important. You also mentioned about playing to people's strengths. And that was one of the early lessons that I also really experienced. You know, not every single person is... What most new managers do is they say, okay, you sold $40,000 in sales. You're amazing. You're going to be a sales manager or you're going to be the dom. Or you're gonna, I'm gonna put you at this role because you're the best at sales. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best person suited to be in that position. And I think it's really important to every single year, I would write down all of my positions that I have available. And I would jot down and I would say, okay, here's my receptionist manager. Here are the characteristics that I'm looking for in this person. Here's my sales manager. Here's the characteristics that I'm looking for this person. And anytime I give a talk on leadership, my first thing that I tell people is you have to know what you're looking for to find it, Mm -hmm. right? You can't just staff everything. You have to say, okay, you know, because if you're in an interview, you might be talking to the perfect candidate during that interview, but if you don't know what you're looking for, you're going to miss it, Mm -hmm. right? So I teach my staff this and it's really cool because now my staff, they know what they're looking for in the system managers and training. They know what they're looking for in key staff. They know what characteristics they're looking for in certain roles. So now it's you know the compound effect. Our leaders are developing leaders. They're developing more leaders, and it's really cool to see. Yeah, it's great to see what you've been able to do, you know, over your career with this knowledge and this inspiration that you provide to people, David. I know you had an excellent run as a district manager. You were slated for future promotion in the company. And then you had another opportunity come your way. You, you obviously were very talented. People knew that. So you were in demand. You were recruited to another opportunity and decided to take your shot at that. Ultimately, you felt like you wanted to be back here. What is it that you feel brought you back to the Vector business? What, what does Vector offer that other places don't? Yeah, so you're going to laugh. So I had this belief, okay, at the time that young people who we work with. I wanted to work with leaders. I didn't want to work with young people. I wanted to work with people that didn't have excuses. I wanted to work with people that were inspired. I wanted to work with people that were had reasons to work hard. You know, all these different things. And I realized that everybody has excuses, right? Like, you know, and... Oh, and the excuses get way more hardwired when somebody is 35 or 40 or 45 than when somebody's 20. Yes. So, you know, I had it all. My office was on like the 35th floor. I was uh, a CEO for a company. Like next door was to, uh, to our office was a Superdome. And I was so unhappy. And I don't know if you've ever had a situation where you wanted something so bad. And then when you got it, it just wasn't what you thought. And I had a lot of pride. I didn't want to admit I was wrong. So I stuck around. I stuck around for a little while. And I was listening to a podcast one day. And it was talking about leadership or what is your mission? And I always knew from a very early age that my mission was to to be a leader of leaders and to develop leaders. And that was my core value. That was my goal. That's the reason why I was put on this earth. And I had this moment of guilt, Dan, this moment of just disgust on how I could leave Cutco, where if that's my mission, I had the opportunity to impact people at the perfect age where they need the most molding, right? Where This is the time where they need it most. And I just never, I don't know why it took me leaving the company to understand that I was living my dream. This was the NFL for me. You know, this was the NBA. This is my dream. This is what I've always wanted to do. And I had to leave to understand. Mm. And I decided that I wanted to come back. And my journey is a really cool one. I left the company and I went and sold $100,000 in Cutco. 
And as I was selling Cutco, I was on my way to Corpus Christi. I was listening to your podcast with Brandon Brown. And I remember him, you asked him the same question. You said, okay, you left the company, you came back on fire. You know, what were some of the tips? And he was talking about the human potential. He was saying, I wanted to figure out what I was capable of doing. He ran a startup with his, uh, with his friend at the time and it taught him how to run a business. And by the way, holy crap, like I learned how to run a business. Like I realized how great Cutco was once, once I left, which we'll get to in a little bit. But I remember I was on my way to Corpus Christi. I was working a Farron's show and my goal was to sell $50,000 that campaign. Well, the first three and a half months, I had sold $20,000 and I had you know, about a half month left to sell another 30 grand. And as I was listening to Brandon, he was talking about the human potential. He was talking about this concept of just being a champion. And I was like, man, I want to be a champion. And I remember just listening to the podcast multiple times and I went to the show and I sold $30,000 in 13 days and I hit my goal. And that was just a big breakthrough. It was like almost like a reminder of who I was as a person. You know, I had spent two years of just being unhappy. So that was a really cool moment. And then I, I prepared my butt off. I worked hard. And anything you could think of, I did. I mean, I was studying scripts at, you know, not eight o'clock in the morning, at 10 o'clock at night. I was selling Cutco. I was running immersions for the whole division. And I wasn't even working with Cutco yet. And I was like, I'm just going to act as if. And I trained and I trained and I trained. And then right when I was about to open up, COVID happened. And everything that I trained for, they were like, all right, we're going to change it. And I was, didn't know what to do. I was like, okay, I just left this company. I'm back with Cutco. I've just trained my butt off for X amount of time. And you know what? Like I had this fear of, un- I had this uncertainty. I was like, I don't even believe in virtual demos. It's so interesting because my, in my territory, we have Tulane and Loyola and nobody's from New Orleans, right? They're all from the Northeast or, or you know, California or whatever. So if I would have known this earlier, holy cow, it would have been so different. But, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so I was like, virtuals, there can never happen. And you know, I just bought in. I bought into Drew. I bought into Wes. And what a cool story. After all of that, I had 120 people set for training my first week. I had zero people helping me at the time. Out of the 120 people set, I hired like 110 of them. And I was doing remote interviews. I once hired 30 people in one day on remote interviews. Just, it was just awesome. And we did $20,000 in new business. And our first week open, we finished as a number one new business office in the nation. Wow. Yeah. That is incredible. And you have continued that ever since then. I definitely want to get into that. I just feel like I want to point out one thing that you said, which resonated for me. It's that we have a chance in Vector as leaders to take people at a very formative age and provide them with the tools, the mindset, the frameworks to succeed, not just here, but in anything they do in life. And we have a chance for a tremendous amount of real impact, like really making a difference. Almost every job does not have that height of power and impact. And that, in a nutshell, David, is what has kept me here for over 30 years. It's kept so many others in our business for so long. And it's what hopefully our current team of district managers can realize that they have in their hands without having to leave to see it right? That's so powerful. Tell us a little bit about how you've had this epic run of consistency, because starting from that first week open, you have done over 10K new business every single week since then. I think we got to be going on 55 or 60 weeks at this point in a row. How does a team have such great consistency? Sure. Well, it started off with pain. I realized that talent only takes you so far in this business. I used to think of myself as the guy as the guy with charisma or the guy that had high energy. But what I realized is we've had branches in the past that looked up to me as a role model and saw me wing it, saw me just rely on culture and just not really have a plan, but still have success to an extent, right? And that success was exactly what you can imagine. Really big during the summer, 
And during the fall and spring, it would dip down because we didn't have systems and we didn't have programs. And I, I had just time to reflect. And one of the things that I realized is, you know, I have people like Taylor Gamble, who's number one for Silver Cup right now as a new district manager. You know, he did $15,000 as a branch. Why? Why did he do $15,000 as a branch? There was this extreme ownership that it was my fault. It was my fault because I didn't have the systems and programs in place to lead people. And it just caused so much pain and that I decided that that would never happen again. So from the first day, I created every system, every program that was going to be for the SEC division. Even if I wasn't going to be the division manager, I wanted to make sure that our people had systems and programs. But most of all, I wanted to make sure that anybody can succeed because they deserve it, right? Whether you're introverted, extroverted, shy, outgoing, you can be a kick-butt branch manager. You can be a kick-butt assistant manager. You can be a kick-butt district manager. And we have the tools to help anybody. And that's leadership. And so from the first week, Dan, even while there were assistant managers, everything that I did was systematic. And of course, people have talent. And for sure. But when they were making calls to their reps, when they were doing PDI, PDI script was up. When they were running interviews, interview scripts was up, right? I treated them like branch managers very early. And that was step number one. Number Step number two was, where does your energy go? And we've always been told 80% of the business from the top 20%, right? And then vice versa. And so when you start treating them like branch managers and every day, you know, it's really hard when you look at the macro scale of things to say, okay, we're going to do $10,000 every single week, no matter what. But if you have seven on staff or five on staff, it's really easy to say, how can you get this team to do two grand? How can you get this team to do two grand? Mm-hmm. How can you do this, get this team to do two grand? And who is your top 20%, right? Who are you going to duplicate this week, right? Who's your person that you're going to have at the newsletter before the team meeting? And we have metrics, right, for every day of the week. You know, I always think about it like if you're playing football, there has to be a score, right? There has to be an objective that you're trying to accomplish. So we do that. You know, so having, being able to spend your energy on your top 20% is really important. Uh, Teaching people how to do that is critical, right? I think the next thing is that every week comes with a different plan. It's like, you know, I know you're a fan of sports, Dan, and, you know, the Saints, when they play against somebody, they're going to have a different scheme. And every week is different. And you can't be afraid to adjust. And that's, that's so important. Some weeks when, you know, Memorial Day weekends in two weeks, right? That's our pop week. It's an eight-day week. We have to be able to adjust to that week. And you know what? Sometimes we're at $3,000 in new business sales, and it's a Thursday. You have a small training class. Well, you have to adjust. You have to focus on who's the person that you have the most leverage with, who's the person that you can generate and duplicate that person. If you call them on the phone, maybe offer an incentive and get two of their friends in training. You have to find ways to win no matter what. Mm-hmm. And then you create an identity, which is the next thing, the identity of winning, right? And finding an identity that no matter what we can win, my, I don't know if it's a record, it's probably not, but whatever the streak is that we have, we were in jeopardy of losing it the other night. And I was so proud of my team. It was 10 o'clock at night. This was during the school year. And we were doing a staff meeting. And I took ownership. I was on a staff meeting. I said, guys, I'll let you down. We're at $8,000 in new business sales. It's 10 o'clock at night. I'm so sorry. I should have been better. The old, you know, like I was just so upset that we weren't able to do the full year. And it was like two weeks before the full year. And I was devastated. And at two o'clock in the morning, I get a a grouping notification that we sold a signature and some other stuff. And we hit 10K at two o'clock in the morning. And I've had times, Dan, you know, believe it or not, where we're at 9,800 and I get a text message from my assistant manager. And she's like, hey, like, I'm going to call people in my family and we're going to, we're going to sell some freaking cutting boards. And they find a way to win. There's an identity now that no matter what, we don't get below that mark. Right. And I think that's so cool. And I think like the, the, the last tip that I, w- I would say is every week you need a different leader and that's okay. You know, when I was new, I would try to, I would find somebody that's really, really, really good at the job and I would try to ride that wave. And yes, I think you should ride the wave, but the answer is always recruiting. And I used to have this mindset, Dan, of I'm going to recruit the right kids, right? And I'm going to recruit the best kids, the people that are going to sell the most. But you know what? I wasn't the right kid and I was developed. 
Yes. And I have a lot more of an open net recruiting now. And you know what? We haven't had a campaign where we launched less than 250 people since I've gotten back. Wow. You know, we lost 250 people in the spring. We lost 250 people in the fall. We lost 250 people in the summer. You can recruit at any time. In the fall, Dan, we had four weeks in a row over 100 set for training. Wow, that's immense. In the fall. So you can recruit at any time, right? And recruiting is the answer. You don't have the training class that you like, recruit, right? If you don't have the culture that you desire, recruit, right? If you know, I think it's important to fix your mistakes, right? As we go, that's really important, right? But if you don't have the staff that you desire, recruit. And I think that a lot of times district managers think that sales is the sexy thing, right? It's all about sales, where necessarily recruiting is the thing that's going to create sustainable business. For sure. We are in a business where we provide opportunity. And that mindset is first and foremost for anybody who wants to be a successful manager. And providing opportunity means giving people a chance to start the job, giving them the the training, the best training that that we can give them and the best support that we can give them. Understanding that some people are going to take a lot of that and do stuff with it. Other people are just going to give up right away. And that's what happens in life, in anything. But we give people opportunity and we give people our best. And that's where it all starts. There was so much that you just shared about success as a district manager, the idea of systems and programs. And, and I think I would add a word, simple systems mm-hmm. and programs. I think of Drew Frank and all of his one-page PDFs where he tries to simplify each concept down to one page that he could teach and get people to understand and follow. Very high level of, of assistant manager training, it seems like, goes on in your office with your team. And, and that's excellent. Breaking down the teams in your office, right? A 10K week could be five teams of 2K, Right. That brought me back to my days running my office where we were trying to become the first office to do a hundred thousand in a push. And then we were trying to become the first office to do a hundred thousand in a week. And these were both two decades ago, David, but they're two goals that we did achieve largely through this idea of breaking down the teams and understanding, well, if I can create 20,000 here and 10,000 there and 20,000 here and 30,000 there, And it's sort of breaking that down and understanding how it would all unfold. Big, big, massive goals can be possible. Driving toward metrics every single week, right? And I mean, the 10K new is just one of the most simple metrics that you can be driving towards. But I know there are others that you drive towards. But finding the way to win no matter what, to get there no matter what, knowing as the week's going along, well, we're trying to get to 10K, so we should probably be at 5K by this point right? We should probably at least be, I'm sure that you every week you would strive to be at 10K before Monday rolls around. But if it's Monday morning and you're not there, you know how much you need to do and you can drive to the finish line to get there. And how that idea of finding a way to win no matter what creates an identity as a winner. Your identity is a consistent performer. Your identity is a top recruiter. And there are probably other elements of your identity that you could articulate that are now a part of who you are. And that's going to sustain your level of excellence on into the future for the long term. So much good stuff, man. Thank you. Yeah. So now you've been promoted to run the SEC division. What uh, is your vision for the organization? You know, I think we just covered it. An identity of winners, an identity of champions. I don't know if there's ever going to be a greater gift and giving people the opportunity to change their identity. I think about, we had a guy the other day, Dan, and I'll kind of get to our values in a second. His name is Riley. And we were in training and Riley comes to me in the breakout room and his hands are shaking. He's nervous. He's having a panic attack and his face is bloodshot red. And he comes up to me and he says, Dave, this job is not for me. I have a lot of social anxiety. I don't know if I can do this. Like, I just don't know if this job's for me. And I told him, I said, look, I don't care if you sell one night. But because you think you can't, you must. You must conquer this. And he ended up being the number one rep in the nation and sold a little bit over $11,000 in his fast start. And now he's an assistant manager in training. And when I think about like our vision, when I think about who we are, you know, I think about developed champions, becoming better men, becoming better women, becoming better doctors, better lawyers, and being a part of that 1% in whatever field you decide to go to. And knowing that there's going to be people that work with us for a long time. 
And there's going to be a lot of people that just use this as a stepping stone, right? And I think that's really important that we don't take for granted that when somebody walks into our Zoom or walks into our office, right, that we have the obligation, right, to get to show up and give that person our very best. So I think about family as well. I was very fortunate to be brought up in Brian Stevenson's division. And I just remember going visit his division and everybody was so close. People were getting married. People were having kids. People were buying houses. And I was like, that's what I want. That's what I want. And so I, I think about how honored it was to be a part of that and how I'm bringing that back to my division. And I remember listening to a podcast with you and Dane Espigard. And I remember he was talking about the dreams exercise, right? And that's something that we really do a lot of. And that really inspired me to help people achieve goals inside and outside the business. I just signed up for my first Tough Mudder with one of my district manager candidates, and I'm fired up to be able to do that. But to have a division of longevity of, you know, in three years, I want this goal. Five years, I want this goal. Seven years, I want this goal. And I think, I think that's so important. So I would say winning, family, winning outside and outside of the business. And I would say the last thing would just be excellence. And when I think about excellence, and standards, really. It's also, it's Cutco, but it's not Cutco, right? And I always believe that the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And, you know, I think about excellence, be the best mom you could be, be the best dad you could be. And that's really what we're focused on. Our values are simple. By the way, if anybody's thinking about what is their office stand for? I had a, a moment, Dan, where when I was thinking about this months ago, I was like, I was thinking about this big complex answer, right? And all the things that I wanted as far as like my core values, all the things I wanted for my division. And I was like, you know what? Like, what if I kept it simple? What if I kept it simple? You think about like the Patriots or Alabama, like teams that are always good. They have a simple philosophy. And, you know, the fear that I had in the beginning was, will their philosophy get old? What does Alabama get old, right? Does the Lakers get old? Does the Patriots get old? Did the Celtics with their run get old? And the guy from Clemson, uh, Dabo, you know, he says that, you know, you can win a national championship, but if you don't develop great men and great fathers, then you didn't do your job. So our philosophy is really simple. And the SEC, we develop champions, right? Men and women that are going to become the best versions of, of themselves. Wow. That was really powerful. David, you know, I think about the whole theme of the podcast is changing lives, and you just described that to a T, developing champions, striving for excellence, not just in the business, but out of the business. And then the key thing here, changing identity, helping people to change their identity from whatever identity they have with whatever self-doubt might be a part of that, whatever thought of I can't do this or I can't do that might be a part of it. And helping people to see possibility, to feel like they deserve it, to understand how to do it, and then to go out and make it happen. Man, you're changing lives at an amazing level, and it's, it's so cool to see what you're doing. Awesome. Yeah, I'm having fun. That's the best part. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you back in the business. It's amazing to see how this kid who you know, was self-proclaimed not enough social skills and you know, not uh, you know, hated talking in front of people has become such a powerful and influential and dynamic and engaging leader. I mean, you are just a great speaker and I'm sure everybody that's listened to this podcast today has not just learned a lot, but had fun listening to you. And it's so cool to see how you've developed. And I know the Vector business has been a large part of helping you to evolve into that dynamic and engaging leader that you are. And and now you're paying that forward by developing so many other young people. And you're definitely in the right place at the right time now. Thank you, Dan. Yep. Thanks so much for being part of the podcast today, David. Of course. Thank you for having me. David Roy, everyone. Wow. What an awesome conversation that was. Starting with the concept of finding role models or mentors in life and how that can be so helpful in taking people through some of the early challenges that they face, whether it's on this job or in anything else. Shout out to Julian Landry and Mike Lonzetta 
for the roles that they played in David's early career, as well as, of course, his manager, Jared Blanchard. The concept of leading from the front, excellent concept for anybody who's in any sort of leadership position, particularly if you are a new leader building an organization, trying to model excellence in what you do and set an example for others. David gave some great ideas on development and being able to let go of being perfect and making sure that people are treated properly when they make mistakes so that they continue to have a willingness to try things and do things and get in there and solve problems on their own. Occasionally, they'll make mistakes right there. I just loved, of course, the part where David described how he wanted so bad to be able to have this opportunity that he took outside the business and you know all the outer trappings of success, but it wasn't what he really wanted. And what he really wanted was to be able to be a leader of leaders impacting people and that he had to leave to see that he had that here at Vector. And he has really taken advantage of the knowledge that he has now, of the conviction that he has now in the opportunity that he has here at Vector and, and made the most of it. Having metrics for every week, driving toward those numbers and finding ways to win no matter what, and how this creates an identity of who you are. And then, of course, as a leader, having the gift of being able to give people the opportunity to develop and change their own identity. That's what we have here at Vector, and that's so compelling. David referenced CVI very briefly, the Core Values Index. I want to encourage you to visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. And on that page, there's a link there to be able to take the CVI test for free so you can learn a little bit more about yourself and your own core values. Hope you've enjoyed this episode today. If you did, please share it with other people in your network. I think there was a tremendous amount of value here. David says he wanted to strive to be a value giver. I can't help but think you all got tremendous amount of value out of this interview today, this conversation that we had. And so share it with people in your network. And I appreciate that support. Hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.